welcome to Volume 4, Issue 190 of the Cane and Rinse Podcast. This issue is on Dark Souls 2, but before we get onto that, you can play along with Cane and Rinse Volume 4. The next five games we are covering are Sensible World of Soccer series, The Secret of Monkey Island, then we, uh, we get back to our Halo series with Halo Reach, after that it's Thomas Was Alone, and then Comics Zone. You can find out what we are covering beyond then to the end of Volume 4 at canonrinse.com. You can also find their blog posts, links to our forum, Facebook page, and our YouTube channel. You can also find their links to our shop where you can support the podcast by buying quality, stylish Canon Rinse t-shirts, bags, and much more. Please do also, whilst you are on your podcast software of choice, check out our fortnightly video games music podcast. There is a separate feed for this, which you can find at canonrinse.com, but you can set your podcast software of choice to search for Sound of Play. You can help bring new people to our digital door for both Canine Rinse and Sound of Play by reviewing, rating, and most importantly, subscribing to both of our podcasts on iTunes or whichever other podcast software you use. Before we dive into Dark Souls 2, I think it's probably uh, timely to remind you that we previously covered Dark Souls in Volume 2, Issue 76 of the podcast, and we also chatted Demon Souls in Volume 3, Issue 118. This being our third Souls show, joining me, James Carter, in this issue, the only recurring member of the cast. He may well be Trixie, and in this case he is voiced by Peter Serafinovitz. He is Sean O'Brien. So I'm looking at the three word reviews and we're missing the most important one for Dark Souls 2. And that's going to be Tongue Butthole. <laughs> <laughs> also joining us, I slapped on a ring, but he still would not talk to me. My base intelligence is just not high enough for Joshua Garrity of the Fold. Hello there. Heading into New Game Plus, I opened what I thought was a very safe chest to pull out some titanite, and I got eaten alive by surprise mimic Ryan Heyman. The soul still burns. And joining us from our Demon Souls podcast. Last time around, was he a mirage? Was he the original thing? One thing's for certain, this time around he's covered in dark magic and he is coming for you in the cathedral. CJ Black. How you doing? My, my name engraved ring is on and my god is the ring of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> okay folks, Dark Souls 2 is going to be a pretty tough one to get in under two hours. I'm going to hit you with a spoiler warning right now. By the end, you will forget everything. From Software on developing duties for this again, Bandai Namco Entertainment publishing, as they did for Dark Souls. Directors in this case notable because for the first time Hidetaka Miyazaki was not listed as uh, creative lead on this game. Uh, He was involved but directing duties were passed to Tomohiro Shibuya and Yui Tanimura. Composer returning Motoi Sakuraba, also this time with Yuka Kitamura. Um, For some of us, we'll get into our histories in a sec, it's probably worth mentioning there was a closed beta test for PS3 users, you had to sign up for that and be chosen random slash invited uh, on the 5th of October 2013. Uh, There was then a a second beta phase where everyone who was in the first one was invited back, but also PS Plus subscribers could join in, and that was on the 27th of October 2013. The game was then released between the 11th and 14th of March 2014 if you were on consoles, which is PS3 and 360, and was released... 24th of April 2014 worldwide for uh, for PC users. 
So let's dive into when we came to the games, uh, specifically starting with Sean. I was actually day one, um, which actually shouldn't be a surprise. But uh, yeah, I was a huge fan, as anyone who listened to the past shows, at uh, Souls shows knows. Uh, massive fan of Demon Souls and Dark Souls. And um, after a brief period of being worried about Dark Souls 2 uh, before its release, I ended up pre-ordering it um, about like a month before release date. So played it day one, and I played it through on PS3, I think twice, and uh, once on PC. Cool. Excellent. Thank you very much. Josh, this is your first time on a Caden Rin Souls episode, but uh, obviously many of us will know that this isn't your first Souls rodeo. Yeah, and so um, I, I was late to the Souls party in that um, when you covered uh, the original Dark Souls uh, on this show, um, I hadn't played the game, and it would be you know a couple of years after its release until mm. I uh, I actually gave it a chance. Um, I, I bounced off of the first Dark Souls multiple times, and it wasn't until you, James, came into the game and <laughs> and told me, this is how humanity works. This is how all these mechanics that the game doesn't explain to you, you know, these are this is how it works. And once all those things started to click, um, I really fell in love with Dark Souls. Mm. I think the original Dark Souls is a masterpiece. I, I consider it one of my favorite games ever. Um, so, as you can imagine, I was relatively excited for Dark Souls 2. The thing is, though, and it might feed into my general reaction to this game, I wasn't that excited for this game because um, I just I, I couldn't help but think, how, how are they going to top Dark Souls 1? Because for me, Dark Souls 1 was so singular and so such a perfect expression of everything it was trying to explore that I, I kind of wanted them to do something completely different, which we would eventually get, um, uh, rather than continuing to explore this lore. Um, so I was kind of like, yeah, I, I want to play this, but I'm mm. not like thinking this is going to be the best game ever. Mm. So yeah, um, again, expectations informing your overall opinion is something we always talk about on Kane and Rinse, and I think it's definitely the case here. Yeah. Um, I seem to remember you were going to hang on for the PC version, but yeah, I did caved. hold off. No, no, no. <laughs> okay, well, I I held off for the PC version. So, so you were sort of uh, five weeks behind, and I managed to witness the full curve of um, of opinion in that time. <laughs> so it went from "Oh my god, this is the best game ever" to mm, I, don't, "I don't know." So um, <laughs> I, I think that I, I think that helped uh, in terms of my reaction to the With game. Also, expectations mm. as well, yeah. Excellent. Ryan, uh, again, your first time on a Kane and Rin's Souls podcast. That's right. I came to the Souls series a little bit late, just like Josh. Um, I had Dark Souls installed on my PC for a long time, but every time I tried to boot it up, it would always just run absolutely terribly. And I know that people say that uh, um, the way to fix this is to install DS Fix, but for mm -hmm. me and my computer, actually, the way that I fixed it was removing DS Fix. That was messing everything <laughs> up for me, so I can't explain that. But um, I, I did finally play through Dark Souls, and by the time I, I finished it and loved that game, um, it was actually just about time for Dark Souls 2 to start, you know, releasing. And so I got that in a real nice, like a back to back almost. And so I pre ordered this for PS3. 
I got the Black Armor edition, which comes with a soundtrack and a nice steel case. Mm-hmm. I then bought it again on PC, also day one of the PC release, played it through there again. And then I bought the special, like super special edition on the Xbox 360 because it was very heavily marked down and I wanted mm-hmm. that cool knight statue. <laughs> ended up selling the game disc on that one. So I ended up only spending like five bucks on the statue, which is awesome. <laughs> and then I got a review copy of Scholar of the First Sin on PS4. So I've, <laughs> I have, you know, four copies of this game throughout my history. And every one of them slightly different from the last. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, speaking of multiple copies, CJ. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I was long since smitten with, with Dark Souls, and I remember uh, waking up one Sunday morning uh, following uh, the announcement at some sort of Game Trailers Award show, mm-hmm. where the first trailer debuted to a tweet that just read, Dark Souls 2, son. Dark Souls 2. <laughs> Um, I followed sort of every sighting and whisper of this game, the big IGN gameplay reveal featuring Mm -hmm. that original lighting engine uh, through to a a preview that I attended at Namco in uh, London in early February. I booked the week off at the first whiff of a release. Um, I saved money. I succumbed to numerous retailer exclusives um, (laughs) and was beyond excited. I got uh, the comic book thing, the poster one, uh, the statue edition i bought it twice again on xbox one and ps4 when it came out as well you don't need a sense of shame in your voice about that (laughs) shamed about here so yeah with um it was it was interesting that um when reports started to kick in from previews and reviews hit um the reviews themselves were some of the highest that year um Mm -hmm. i mean i i played dark souls 2 and was entertained i knew from the original game that these things take time to bed in um, on my first playthrough of the original Dark Souls, all the aspects that made the game resonate beyond the game, I had no clue about. They weren't yeah. as prevalent in Demon Souls, so I had no idea they were there originally in Dark Souls. Mm. It was only when Epic Namebro began to talk about um, the lore and new builds and weapons and mechanics and explain things like humanity and stuff, tying these people and places together that my appreciation of that kind of storytelling around uh, around a game and around Dark Souls grew. Um, initially, I was just enchanted by art, design, the enemies, and just plain existing in that world. Um, I know a good chunk of folks arrived at Dark Souls with the game already holding that mythos and lore, and all of those aspects have been mined and were already there for them. Um, and, I mean, those initial points of reference shone as an intrinsic part of that experience for them. When Dark Souls 2 um, arrived, fan reaction, as Josh was saying, didn't match the reviews across the internet. It was mixed between the folks that were really enjoying it and those to which the experience really wasn't there for them. Uh, But at that point, I was entertained, um, enjoying the world, the combat, much in the same way as I did with Demons and Dark Souls, but hoping somewhere down the line I'd fall a little bit further. And I did... And I did in a big way. <laughs> so unsurprisingly for me, I was absolutely ready for this day one. I booked a week off work um, <laughs> to make sure I had plenty of time to play it. I ordered the Ridiculous Statue Edition, which was the last full-on limited edition I think I'll probably ever order for a game. Uh, not because I didn't appreciate this one, 
uh, putting it outside on a chair for my partner to come home to with you shall not pass written on a piece of paper underneath <laughs> it was a highlight of, of the day, to be honest. Um, at one point, I had this ordered 16 different versions of this ordered across different retailers. because. <sighs> Between the different versions and the different platforms and the different bonuses, that there were multiple ones. I ended up with the metallic uh, engraved cards from Amazon, but uh, I ended up with two of the statue versions and ended up selling one on as well. But I, I just, between desperately wanting to make sure I had it on release day and uh, wanting to have all my bases covered, I had 16 pre-orders at one point, and that obviously was never going to end up with 16 copies of the game, but mm. that speaks to how much I wanted to be on the ball with this game when it came out and be part of, for the first time, although I did get Dark Souls 1 uh, in its month of release, I, I was still playing Demon Souls, so I didn't get to it until well after um, everyone had, had had their sort of conversations as they were playing through with everyone playing through all at once discovering all the secrets etc and, and this was the first time that was going to be the case for me so upon first booting up the game for each of us at our various junctures in 2014 i think it is worth just as we do for most games talking about the graphics and art style first of all just as kind of the, it's often the first thing you see when you come into mm. the game especially in these games where you get the opening cutscenes that kind of lead you into the world and set expectations a little bit. Well, my, my first sort of uh, glimpse of, of this was um, uh, jumping on a, a 2 a.m. bus to try and go down to London, and the bus had got a broken toilet door so it stank, and the bus was the bus. The bus. The sorry. The toilet door was like banging as I went sort of through through the midnight uh, darkness towards um, uh, towards London. When I, when I sort of finally got near the offices, it was like, I've earned this. Dark Souls has, has kind of <laughs> thrown me to the wolves to make sure that I got there. And um, when I first put the headphones on and first sort of pressed the button and, and hit things betwixt, I got a lump in my throat. Um, and I think that was part of just wanting this so much and just being there and being in that initial instance and um, just wanting to, to look at everything and sort of take it in and um, and really devour as much as possible. Um, and the point that I I went down to Medulla, I just and I saw that sunlight break through the cave, and I heard that beautiful music start to start to sort of um, twinkle and chime into existence. Mm -hmm. I I I really teared up. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, I I was looking across the ocean and wondering if those broken bits of uh, of, of architecture was something to do with the fall of Grand Lake and I had no idea and I was just curious and hopeful and my heart was all over it. Yeah, I think that first view of Medulla when you've been yeah. walking through the cave with that shard of light, the shaft mm -hmm. of light at the end of it and you're heading towards it and the music kicks in and it, it looks a bit firelink-ish but, mm -hmm. but with the sunset and the ocean and the hints at the fact this was a, a kingdom that has been lost, you know, mm -hmm. um, yeah, it just took my breath away. I, I mean, I, I think it's fair to say that Dark Souls 2 makes one hell of a first impression. Not only does it look aesthetically, you know, beautiful um, with, you know, uh, things betwixt and then going to Medulla, but being able to see locations from far away, like seeing Dran Lake Castle from all the way from Medulla and, and other locations, it felt like, ah, oh, right, yes, they got this part right. Now, I don't, now, I don't think that's <laughs> consistent all the way through the game. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and the the visuals for me are 
really inconsistent if we're talking about the entire experience. Yeah, there absolutely. are moments there are moments where it looks stunningly beautiful. Mm. Um, for me, the, the moment that uh, stands out is um, the Dragon Eerie, uh, where the dragons are flying about and there's like ash blowing through the air. <laughs> and then there's like this weird like wasp-like kind of structures like jutting out of the, the pillars of earth, like mm. suggesting that the dragons kind of make these weird like wasp-like nests. Mm, that was yeah. stunning. But then you get mm. to areas where I, I forget the name of the minor, the minor town area, but um, the, the textures on the wall and, and all over mm. the place mm. just, just look muddy and murky. And you really do get the sense that a lot of this game wasn't quite finished in that department specifically, that, that there was just visual effects that needed a little longer in the oven and weren't given that time. I think I think for me, um, with regards to those first impressions, like you were mentioning there, was um, the point where you uh, you go through a tunnel and then you hit a rainstorm and you're on the stairway to Drang Lake Castle. Mm, yes. And then you turn around that corner and it just looks like it's been etched in chalk against the moonlight. It's just, it was one of those where I just, I just, I, I sort of got to the top of that staircase and just went. And caught my breath, and it seemed really black cauldron, and one of those places where it's like, I'm going right over there. You know, as far as very first impressions of the game, I actually didn't care for things betwixt all that much, mm. uh, just because the tutorial area in Dark Souls 1 was so, and I know we don't want to be doing comparisons the entire show, no, but uh, the asylum is it's just a very, like, it feels like a very real place, like it's all very yeah. tangible, and yeah. it feels like it's um, kind of coherently laid out, whereas things betwixt kind of feels like a like a menu almost like you're entering various doors to <laughs> yeah and it, i don't know it just it doesn't feel like a natural world but i i will agree that that uh the first step into medulla is is very magical and i think there's something especially magical about the music in medulla especially the more you come back to it time and time again just how kind of mm -hmm. calming and and beautiful it is and it kind of reflects this uh it's almost like sunset or sunrise over the ocean type towns, a very relaxing atmosphere, which is not something you typically expect from a Souls game. But I, I love how the music in Majula kind of warps as it goes on, kind of like uh, it, it gets kind of dark and dissonant, yeah. uh, just kind of creeps into that real mm -hmm. and like spooky type of sound. It's kind of like when you are, um, when you're looking at, a face in a mirror or something and then you just kind of you stare past it and you don't focus on the face itself and it starts to deform and warp into all kind of mm. monstrous shapes yeah. until you refocus on it and to me that kind of reflects the experience of hollowing in that you're kind of losing your focus on the world and the world around you is is warping itself into monstrous shapes and so, yeah, I, I think that the music in Majula kind of reinforces a lot of the themes of not only this game, but the Souls series as a whole. It's a nice little microcosm of that. There's that, there's that wonderful sense of hope there as well, that a mm. storm has passed. And with, with you saying about the, um, the, the aspect of, I know, pertaining to the, to the story and, the, and, and the, world, the world of the Souls games as, uh, as well, there's this feeling that maybe it's the tide that's washed over the sand and all that was there before has just been, you know, washed to, to still to, to form itself again during the, the day. But, um, yeah, the music's, uh, it reminded me a little bit of the, 
um, the feeling of being safe in the Resident Evil mm. games when the, the piano mm. music kicks in. Dark Souls 1 had the impression of like a dying world and, mm. you know, everything was already doomed from the get-go. And so you were just kind of in a race against time against this doomsday clock. And Dark Souls 2 kind of reintroduced you to a world that kind of posited the idea that maybe maybe death isn't the worst thing that can happen. Maybe there's something worse than death. Remember how there is mm -hmm. no death in the Dark Souls world? And so what were you so worried about with this dying world? Like, of course, it's not going to die. Of course, it's going to keep coming back, but in a more like hollow and less fulfilled version of itself. Like this is the true horror that we're experiencing. There's just going back to the music, there's less of an emphasis on kind of like there's a lot of dramatic music in the first um, Dark Souls, um, mm. uh, creating this sense of urgency and, uh, and, and so forth. Whereas in Dark Souls 2, a lot of the most memorable music is where the player is presented something either kind of puzzling or haunting. Um, like, like the King, uh, King Vendrick moment, which I'm sure we'll get oh, onto God, yeah. later. The yes, music, yes, yes. the music there is really effective because it is mm. this just moment of, wait a minute, <laughs> what's going on here? <laughs> I, uh, it's, it's just because it, in that moment, the game is kind of subverting your expectations of where this story is going to yeah. go. And the music really effectively reflects that. And I, I don't think the soundtrack is as strong overall, simply because you don't get those memorable uh, boss battle themes, like the Ornstein and Smo theme and, and stuff like that. But in those moments where it's just presenting you something very mysterious and haunting, the music is extremely effective. It's worth mentioning at this point in regards to, to graphics before we move on that um, this game was originally released on PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360 after the release of the subsequent consoles um, that, that would take over from them. So um, this game definitely... Is, is better looking game technically than, than Dark Souls or Demon Souls, in my mind. But um, when we come on to Scholar of the First Sin, that's where you really see what maybe they were aiming for, I suppose. There was a feeling in my mind that it was somewhat technically held back by the systems that it was on. Well, there was that whole lighting debate. And the downgrade, yeah, absolutely. It didn't affect my experience with the game, I don't think, but putting the, the video or, or screenshot side by side, you can see the difference. I mean, I feel like you can feel it as you're playing the game. Like it was designed, uh, just um, level design philosophy. And a lot of the challenges were built around this idea w that you'd have to be kind of switching between a torch and your shield yeah, to kind yeah. of cut through the darkness. And that didn't really come to fruition in the final game. And so a few of the areas feel a little awkwardly designed because that whole aspect isn't really present there any longer i was never sure on that on that regard if um if it was down to uh technical issues or if it was just too much of the darkness wasn't working and maybe they found a uh, mm. a common ground with the new technology with the the new gen stuff but i know that when mm -hmm. i played mm. the initial uh, preview about the preview build about a month or so before the game come out it came out it 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 really had trouble turning left and right mm, um right. so they would i'm wondering if that was if that was part of it that um 
But uh, yeah, it's an interesting one. The only time I ever really engaged with the torches was to play a little game in my own mind of kind of hopscotching about between the the various places <laughs> you could use the torch. In in things betwixt and onwards, it was just yeah. I'd see if I could light all the braziers. Is the word I'm looking that. for, and, uh, and it never really felt necessary. And the real dark still starts here. <laughs> <laughs> but we will come back to gameplay in a second. I think what what the the aspects of the graphics and and music that we did talk about that was set up the the world. Well, we talked about Majula, but Drang Lake as a whole isn't Lordran, although there are there are aspects of Lordran in it. Drang Lake was was something slightly different. It was a, a a world set upon the ashes of a world set upon the ashes of ad infinitum back somewhere to Lord Rand, maybe. And at the centre of this, we've already mentioned him, King Vendrick. There is a very interesting setup between him and the Chandra in this kind of um, Macbeth style relationship that they have. Um, there are a lot of kind of Shakespearean mini stories going on in this world, but King Vendrick and the Chandra was one that. But obviously, is set up right from the beginning. One of the first things that um, the Herald Shanalot tells you is that you need to to seek Vendrick, basically. So the story, to me, is probably my biggest complaint about Dark Souls Two because the opening cutscene, which is first off amazingly well done, the whole visual style of the opening cutscene is immaculate. But it te- it p- picks up this whole story about how. Um, you're cursed and you're going to go and, and find the cure for the curse and she sends you on this way and the f- first thing that you do is now you have to seek a king and there's no reference to curses at all from here mm-hmm. on out so like th- the rest of the story I just kind of was hoping it was getting back to this curse stuff as far as I can remember it doesn't then like the threads just keep going left and right so you find the king and then he's hollow so you have to find a dragon because you have to find a dragon yeah. who tells you to walk into these big trees, and then you know it just keeps going crazier. And I, yeah, I don't know. This is this is something that I have felt, maybe not as strongly as you, Sean, but it's certainly something that I felt at the time, and I've heard other people complain about in in equal measure. But equally well, I have spoken to people for whom that's the way they felt about Dark Souls, and yeah. they felt that knowing what you were doing and what the goal was and where you were headed was mm-hmm. better represented in Dark Souls 2. So it's one of these really weird things where mm. I don't think that aspect of it's going to be a universal complaint, but no, if it's something that bothered not. you, it's going to really bother you about the game because this game's not a game where uh, you're given a checkpoint or a map or no. you know your, your objective's made clear, but I, I do know what you mean. There's this sense of, am I really supposed to be this confused about what I'm doing? Yeah. And for some reason, it left me, similarly to you, thinking... Are the developers sure? Is the yeah. person who wrote this story sure what I should be doing? Is this intentional obfuscation or is it just right. badly planned to the point of seeming obfuscating? I'm definitely more positive on the game than Sean, but I I really have to agree with him on this point in particular. And for me, it's just it, it's not just the story. There's like like a lack of cohesion. Of mm. all the different areas in Dark Souls Two, like all together, mm. yeah. um, the, the faint, you know, the bit that everyone talks about is the elevator <laughs> that leads mm-hmm. to a volcano, <laughs> um, which just makes no sense. And you mm. and you think about that moment, and then you think about Dark Souls One, where everything feels like it beautifully connects together, and mm. and there's this sense that like you know everything is tied together, every story thread has a reason for being here in this location, and 
and uh, you know how it ties to other locations and stuff like this. For me, Dark Souls Two, and and I, I'm not the first person to make this obs- uh, observation. Um, Gary and uh, Cole from uh, Bonfire Side Chat have said this mm-hmm. in the past as well. The the best stories in Dark Souls Two are the smaller ones that mm-hmm. are location specific. So that that stuff I found really satisfying. Just like the little narratives that are uh, placed in each area. But the story of the entire, like entirety of Drang Lake, there are too many threads that don't get tied together. Mm. There's too many locations that feel completely separate, like they're in a completely different area of the world, for mm. it to feel as cohesive as as Bloodborne, as as Dark mm. Souls, and even Demon Souls. It's a real shame because I I really like what they're trying to do, but it just mm. lacks that cohesion that you know elevates it to the next level. Yeah, and it also kind of feels like the writers threw in a get out of jail free card with that line of you're always going to forget where you're going and having characters forget where they're going. Just I, I know for some people that that amnesia aspect has has fitted together better. The, the notion that a lot of people around you, although not all of them, which isn't necessarily always satisfactorily in my mind explained, the notion that because you as a player and therefore you as a, as a character as well are hollowing throughout the game, you're losing your memory and therefore there are gaps. So... Um, as as CJ said, when you walk through that tunnel from what is a dry, relatively sunny day, if you like, mm. um, you walk through a tunnel and come out to Drang Lake Castle, and suddenly it's stormy, turbulent, mm. um, you know, low sun type environment where it's dark and and it's completely changed. The notion being that you are traveling and have because yeah. of your the amnesia of your curse, you have lost track of your memory. The hub and spoke na- nature of the game means that. It feels like there are separate strands, and each of these little stories is supposed to occupy a strand of that the the world, if you mm. like. So, for instance, going from Forest of Fallen Giants, you go to uh, onto uh, Lost Bastille, and then you go down to the Lost Sinners uh, prison. Um, you should feel that, in theory, there's a story going on through that strand mm. to the in, to the end fight of that old one. I think the problem is, for me, it feels like there are 16 different areas that they developed independently and then worked out how to try to fit them together as a map. That needed to come together better towards the end for me to buy that that was intentional and Mm -hmm. planned all the way throughout. And I should feel this uneasy with how the world fitted together Um, for me. But I know others have found that actually that all worked into the Amnesia storyline really, Mm -hmm. really well. So. You know, mechanically, I really like the hub and spoke layout of the world because uh, it, it presented my my gameplay experience in more of like a checklist type fashion. Like I could always check the uh, my you know teleportation list at a bonfire and say like, oh yeah, yeah, I haven't been here or something new unlocked here. I can go and check that out. Mm-hmm. And there are always like two or three different areas that I could uh, I can go through at any given time. And so, you know, if I wasn't getting along with one of them, I could always just warp somewhere else and and tackle those challenges. And so, you know, uh, completely divorced from the narrative implications of it all, I, I thought that uh, mechanically it allowed moment-to-moment variety. Yeah, I mean, the the, the only place I think that, um, that derailed a little bit for me on my first playthrough was it didn't particularly explain the moment that you had to... Um, 
do the memories levels, yeah. which which really, really threw me for a loop at first mm. and kind of pulled me out of the experience a little bit. Um, and also there was the the point where you were going to different levels and you were beating the bosses and stuff, but the, the point where you, you needed to, you needed the symbol of the king to, to open like certain doors to, to progress further or you had to beat a number of, get a number of the souls, um, the boss souls to mm. then progress mm. to that level. That that was the point where there was a a, a disconnect for me, and I was uh, I was thinking, well, what do I do now? And and even whilst you know I progressed through the game and I went back through those old areas and and these you know got souls to level up and all that kind of stuff yeah. along the way. That was the first point where I felt that my momentum was lost. The the early one that uh, hits a lot of people and hit me, I believe it hits a lot of people. I certainly saw a lot of people asking about it. Um, is when um, is it Lucia of Lindelt? When you've spoken to her in Hade and she has moved back to Medulla, but she's down a pathway that chances are you've probably forgotten there was some kind of <laughs> weird device down there that would fork a path. Mm. And because, and again, this is another uh, criticism that, that ties into this that a lot of people have, and it'd be interesting to get your guys' opinion on. Um, because you get used to as you said, uh, Ryan, I think it was, warping around. If you get stuck down one path, warp to mm. another, it's fine. Because you get used to warping around, there are large stretches of this game that you're only going to see once because there's not yeah. really, if they're a linear path down one of the spokes, there's not really much need to go back to them. Um, and this was one where once you'd gone out to Hades and got to the first bonfire, well, you can just walk back to Medulla, so there's no need to walk down mm -hmm. that path again. Um, and actually... Yeah, maybe you should have remembered there was, or maybe I should have remembered there was a, a device down there and go and investigate it later. But I had I'd received no item in my inventory that led me to believe I could do so. A, a lot of a lot of this stuff I feel like is a consequence of Dark Souls Two being structurally the opposite of Dark Souls One. In that mm. Dark Souls One is very linear to begin with. There is very much like a path that you should be going down uh, towards the beginning. And and the fact that you don't have uh, fast travel at all in the first yeah. half of the game kind of feeds into that. Mm -hmm. So you're always trying to find the right way to go, you know, wherever the game is pointing you. So it, there's there's less of a feeling... Of, well, there there are moments where you get lost, but it's not... It doesn't feel inorganic the way uh, some moments do in Dark Souls, Dark Souls Two. Like mm. it's always like a door you missed or something like that. But it's always near where you are or just a couple of steps away from where you are. Whereas in Dark Souls Two, because it starts with the spokes and then narrows as the game goes on, that I I think it's a bit overwhelming just having. Mm all these different options and i i do get where where ryan is coming from where that can be a benefit in terms of variety mm. but also just in terms of like focus and pacing it can feel very stop start in a way that um dark souls one didn't for me and by the time you do get fast travel in dark souls one and then it does start to spoke off in different directions mm. i think it the game has prepared you uh for what's to come uh it, mm in a much better fashion than Dark Souls 2 does, where it just kind of throws you into this many-spoked world and goes, here you go, just go wherever you want. And, you know, inevitably you go to, you know, Hyde's Tower of Flame first and get <laughs> your butt handed to you by Ornstein or what have you. I, I just think this choice, I, I, I understand it looking exciting on a piece of paper, 
but in terms of just teaching the player how to navigate an environment it it makes you very lazy and mm. and just you're nowhere near as observant of all the doors and all the nooks and crannies That's as true. you are in the early stages of uh, Dark Souls 1. The other side of that there's we've got a world that's that's very different in its makeup to um mm. to Dark Souls and I think in the the hub world feels very similar to the Nexus in that regard uh from Demon Souls mm. that you've got these points that you that you can jump to but um, I don't know. I, I get the I get the the feeling when when I was playing the game that um, whilst I did have other points that I could jump back to, I felt that if I didn't explore, that I'd possibly miss something that could be important. So I was still exploring as as much as possible. And I think within the the world itself, um, in Scholar, I like the way that they they started to um, bring characters in from from different different areas and made it feel more of a whole of a world than uh, than you know the, the the almost level structure that um, that we alluded to there we're looking at a world that feels very different from dark souls i think it's fairly safe to say we all agree but um drang lake definitely has echoes back to lordran um more than a few both in theme both in mechanics and also some sort of little easter eggs within the the world the obvious one I've already mentioned, you enter Drang Lake, which is a kingdom in ruin due to the ruler's absence, which is very much uh, mirroring the theme here. Um, you also learn very quickly that there are fires, that, bonfires, and that there is um, there are references to the first flame and the fire keepers and uh, the flame being uh, linked um, in order to, to rebirth the world. Um, Shalquar talks about that, who is uh, a Cat in the um, in in the jeweler in a, in a hut in the jeweler, which is just wonderful, especially if you end up talking to her through a wall, which I believe is still possible <laughs> if, yep, you, yeah. if you go to pick up an item. Um, um, but multiple people around the jeweler and and throughout the game, uh, there are there are many many references to the fact that this kingdom is built on many kingdoms before it. Um, was there anything in particular that caught your imagination or caught your attention in terms of? how this game relates back to um, Lordran and what that could possibly mean for Dark Souls 2. All right, I need your help. Hmm. Why is Ornstein in this game? <laughs> I cannot tell you. And <laughs> I and as much, it pains me to say that because when I first encountered Ornstein, I was so excited. Exactly, and I'm yeah. sure every, yeah. everyone it's, had it's that reaction reveal. where you're like, Oh my god, he's, it's him! <laughs> it's him, and and the fight's nowhere near as difficult as no. on Steam's mode. Like it's just you and me this time. I've got you. <laughs> yeah, but um, all the way through the game, I I was looking for okay, why why is Onstein here? Why why is he here? He's got dark magic. Is there something to do with that? Is there time travel? Is it an Artorius the Abyss Walker situation where he's kind of you know lost in time or mm-hmm. what have you? Yeah. Um, but the game never really gives you a proper explanation for that. Mm. And I I don't know how I feel about that, honestly. And this moment has kind of diminished for me as time has gone on, just because I never really got an answer to my question, mm-hmm. as I'm sure is the case for you, Sean. Well, you notice in the Scholar of the First Sin edition that there's a dragon hanging out right outside of his door, which is like, mm. that's kind of bad company to keep if you're it's a dragon. Just, like, he yeah, is a dragon slayer. <laughs> like, what are you doing? I think there's, there's something that's, uh, that's intimated 
um, throughout the game with regards to um, Ornstein, and it, it it's not it's not specific, but there's uh, there are many uh, people within the game who are lightning wielders that are possibly sort of sunlight covenant that have been corrupted mm. by darkness. You've got the um, the boss of the undead crypt, and in Scholar, you've got um, essentially like a dark a dark lightning covenant that invade once you once you light the torches and you. Um, you bring light to this to this world of those that just want to want to slumber and suffer. Um, so it, it it doesn't answer the question, but I think there's there's that kind of tickle that mm. something's gone on within the past, and it is it is tied into is it Bellstand? If there is anything, I'm surprised they didn't play the Dark Souls card more than they actually did. Because yeah. when you when you initially get that moment with Ornstein, you're thinking like. Oh my God! Who else is in yeah. here? It asks so really many questions. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm really surprised that they yeah. um, they, they they didn't, didn't at least play that yeah. sort of yeah. once or twice more. And all credit to them in many ways because they 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 could have done quite a lot with with introducing mm. like a um, a moment with an Artorius or a, um, mm. or a Solaire. But you know, like the, the the history of Robin Hood, where it sort of whispers uh, go from town to town, <laughs> from place to place, and the legend changes. It almost feels like. This is a world where certain things are alluded to. There are certain mm. aspects of the past, but mm. it's not. It's not all set in stone and, and in books and legend. I think that's that. That's kind of hit the nail on the head as to why Ornstein being in there is frustrating. Is a lot of the other references are whispers. They are legends. They are yeah. oh, is that maybe? No, it's not. And and that gives enough of an inkling that this kingdom is built on top of potentially several others that were built on top of Lordran. But Ornstein being there invites a question of the direct link. How has this character come out of that particular situation and been put into that cathedral? And I I love the fact that he's not as hard. The cathedral's a bit crappy. It's small. It's not Mm -hmm. very impressive. Once you get inside, it's kind of, you know, it has this moment of wow and then, but actually this is kind of sad in a way because this great character is is now here, essentially just the puppet of the Blue Sentinels. But again, they don't follow through on that notion either because that's the implication, him being in the Blue Cathedral. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a feeling there, and, and Sean Bell ex- explained this wonderfully a couple of months after the uh, the release of this game, where he was saying, there's a feeling there by doing something like that, they are almost commenting on the fact Mm-hmm. This game is in its representation of this world. It's representing a shell of the world that Lordran was. It is an inferior copy, and there's kind of this meta narrative of can the sequel ever be, etc. But again, there's not a follow through on that. That all of these characters playing their roles as X person from Lordran's past um, is a poor copy, which is. The implication by the time you get to the end of Dark Souls is that you're going to take over from Gwyn and, and you're only able to beat him because of how feeble he is now. So you're already an inferior copy of what he was. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would be a wonderful thread if it was taken to its conclusion. And it's weird to be in a Dark Souls, talking about a Dark Souls game, Dark Souls 2, and asking for more clarity on something because I don't <laughs> yeah. want that generally. But right, it feels yeah. like there are they kind of pop their head above the parapet every so often and say, oh, it's Ornstein, and then just go away again. You're like, no, 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 pop up again somewhere else yeah, and give yeah. me another little nugget to follow down that path, and it just doesn't kind of happen. Before we get on to some of the mechanical stuff that we uh, that 
that we want to, to pick up on in, in terms of Dark Souls 2. Um, there's just one last aspect of the sort of the lore and the echoes of Lord Ran, if you like, that I'd like to touch on, which is you start getting the sense it comes in more in the DLC, but you know within this game, I, as far as I remember at least, um, that there are fragments of Manus that have been spread across the world and have started whispering in the ears of powerful rulers. Um, Nishandra being the one in the main game that you, you know about for sure. Um, how did we feel about that aspect? Because obviously Manus was defeated by Artorius Ney, the player who went back in Dark Souls, and now we find out that his influence, um, much like the Dark Soul originally being split into pieces, is, is still being felt. I'm not a huge fan of taking something that's a force of nature and then personifying it. And although Manus is definitely a personification of the Abyss, he it felt more like somebody who was corrupted by the Abyss, like the, the, the furtive pygmy kind of just lost all control over this force of nature and it just kind of spawned out of him. Whereas with Nisandra, you get this kind of like, you know, malevolent, conniving, thinking being that's like planning mm. and plotting. And some of the fear that comes with the Abyss is diminished by making it human. I don't know if that makes sense to you guys or if anyone else agrees with me. I think for, for me, with regards to... Uh, to Manus and the Furtive Pygmy, there's a there's a line of dialogue in the original Dark Souls which said they dug that thing up, they did those things to it, yeah. and when um, when you defeat Manus at the center of him um, is Duskavulasil, and one of my initial thoughts on that was maybe Dusk represents love, maybe she re- represents humanity or um, family or any of those aspects that the creature didn't understand, but for some reason. She's there trapped inside and, and held inside Manus. Hence, when the fragments of Manus sort of burst out and they go into Dark Souls 2, the fact that they do find people, and some of, some of those fragments are corrupted, like you've got the fragments of Nishandra that's, uh, that, that's found its way into the Queen and then whispers in the ear for better or for worse of Vendrick. There's that connection there. You've got the, um, the various ashen idols that go into um, the DLC. Um, I find that fascinating that a creature of darkness, of, of abyss, that's been manipulated by people, that's been torn apart by people and built into that beast, um, then has at the heart of it a, a, a woman. And when those fragments burst out, that they seek love. Yeah, I totally get what you're saying. But um, I think for me, like my reading of the abyss in the first Dark Souls was more of this kind of like inevitable course of nature more like more like the you know the the inevitability that eventually we are going to run out of fossil fuels and all the lights are going to go out or you know the inevitability of overpopulation and the chaos that causes and and just resources going thin and 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 all of that stuff Mm. i i found the abyss more terrifying as this completely apathetic force that had no emotional connection to anything that was going on it was just um just compelled to um expand and and envelop everything that was around it 
yeah, turning it, yeah, turning it into a villain, <laughs> turning mm. it into a person who mm. was like, mm, "I'm going to spread the abyss," <laughs> um, just kind of diminished that kind of that kind of elemental force that mm. it represented for me in in the first Art Souls. Now, having said that, I think the DLC goes some ways to selling me on the idea later on. But at the time when I first finished Dark Souls 1, uh, Dark Souls 2, and Nisandra was the final boss originally, um, I, I found this aspect of the game extremely disappointing. Mm-hmm. See that? I think it, we've spoken about ambiguity in the game, though, but it's it's always fun when you, uh, you know, I, I, I got sort of my, my take on it, and that's, that, that is... I don't know one that really warms my heart, but I can see your take and it's really exciting and it's completely the opposite end of the, the spectrum. And it's like, oh yeah, that's really cool. And the two can sort of exist side by side, but that's what makes these conversations so much fun. We do have a few, before we get on to uh, to talking about Scholar of the First Sim, we do have some, some mechanical slash gameplay aspects that are probably worth mentioning. For the most part, it is taking the core Dark Souls, Demon Souls mechanics and subtly altering or building upon those. So if, if you want a better explanation of what these games are and how they play, I would very heartily suggest going and listening back to our original Dark Souls issue, which was 76. In terms of differences, the big one, the initial one, the one that was right there in the beta because they put in a swordsman class, um, is dual wielding and the fact that beyond dual wielding, you can now have a power stance if you have... above a weapon's strength and dexterity requirements. You can dual wield two weapons. It's not just of the same class. They need to be slightly more closely related than that, but they don't have to be exactly the same weapon. I don't use shields in this game unless they're strapped to my back, giving me some kind of buff. I just don't anymore because the dual wielding and the power stance works incredibly well. You know, you get a couple of rapiers in your hands power stanced. You can stunlock something until the cows come home. I tried a, a bit of a um, a bloodborne sort of style of things on on recent scholar playthroughs, mm, which yeah. was which was interesting because I'd normally been sort of sword and board throughout the other games, but when I when I got through to the DLC, that was where I, I started hiding behind an essential fire door strapped to one of my hands. I was like, Jesus <laughs> Christ! Now this is this is going to sound really weird because for a lot of people, one of the primary appeals of this game is kind of experimenting with the different builds and the different ways you can arrange weapons and and armor and everything. I'm not like that. I have (laughs) an idea of how I'm going to play the game, Mm -hmm. and then I stick to it to a point where I get so attached to my character that I I won't restart the game. I will just New Game Plus every (laughs) single time because I'm going to wear the Elite Knight armor set. As I refer to it, the Garrity set now. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I just, I'm wearing that set all the way through the game. I don't care if there's better armor. I really don't. It looks the best. It's just really attractive. I do seem to have a memory of you asking about five minutes after you got a copy of the game, is the Elite Knight set in it? Where can I buy it? (laughs) And yeah, and... uh, I, I want a sword and shield, and yeah. I, I just, I for me, like my character has to look really 
like elegant but functional. So like the whole dual wielding thing, that feels really like oh, that's somebody showing off. That's <laughs> that's some guy who's arrogant, you know, like oh look, I can carry two swords and like yeah, I'm I'm being practical and that's why I'm going to win <laughs> because I got a shield and I got a sword and I'm going to conquer every situation. Mm. Um yeah, and and just I I I really did try to recreate the the character I had in uh, Dark Souls 1, like, as soon as I got pyromancy, I was like, yes! No, I'm, I'm exactly the same as you, Josh. I, even even since Demon Souls, I've just sword and shield the whole way. Um, but I will say that because they added this dual wielding and this power stance, there's just a lot more ways to play this game now. And it yeah. feels like, as down as I am on the general Dark Souls 2, I think this is actually the most fun Souls game to play. Like, just actually to yeah, play yeah. in your hands, you know? Like, the, the, mm. the combat is much more, especially now that they patched out a lot of the uh, the hitbox stuff, uh, it feels a lot more fluid and quicker now. And it's just yeah. cooler to look at, especially, like, mm. that, that twin blade. Um, whenever anyone gets riled up on someone with a twin blade, um, man, it just looks it looks awesome. Yeah. <laughs> with regards to, to builds like that, I know um, Paddy and I had a uh, thing in the bell tower where um, we, we called ourselves Team Pantu Punchu. And we just had dual cestus and underpants, <laughs> and we just power stanced and fought people. And it was funny, sort of. There were some, some folks with massive swords that you best, but there were other people that would actively take their clothes off in front of you, <laughs> so you could have like a fist fight in there. And it was just great fun. I I love that. Um, yeah, and I, I really like the PvP in this, and I think mm. it's yeah. Uh, I was about it, to bring that. Yeah, up. yeah. It's it's something that I know a few folks that that bounced off Bloodborne. Um, that's one of their favorite things about sort of coming back to, to scholar is, is invasions and fighting. And I, I think the, the variety of how you can approach combat and just mm-hmm. all the different build sets really do feed into why I think this is probably the strongest um, game in the series in terms of uh, multiplayer and yeah. PVP yeah. and all of that. Um, just, yeah, just seeing all of the different build options you can create and, and people really experimenting with the mechanics. I think one of my major criticisms of Bloodborne, which I'm sure we'll cover on a podcast eventually, is that although if you, if you play it a certain way, Bloodborne is amazing in, in combat situations, but only if you play it in a certain way, um, uh, you can't really have the variety of build options that you have mm-hmm. here. And I feel that's why a lot of the PvP community for Bloodborne has migrated to Scholar of the First Sin. Yeah. Just because there just there is more mm-hmm. options here and it's easier to engage with. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the, the covenants really feed into this as well. I think the covenants are the strongest this series has had. Um, I had so much fun uh, playing as both the the uh, the, the Sun Bros and the the Blue Sentinels. Um, Sun Bros kind of like I I you know just basically helping out people with boss fights and stuff like that mm. felt really satisfying. But with the Blue Sentinels, I really felt like I was helping new players who maybe weren't able to fend off um, you know more advanced players and stuff like that. Giving giving you know players that option of not just invading and fighting each other but helping each other out and giving you know giving them chances to 
um, you know, help players who may not be familiar with the series uh, was really gratifying. But then you have the opposite end of the spectrum with, you know, the Rat Covenant, where it's, you know, it's all about just really messing with players in certain areas Mm. and having those... I think it was very clever, uh, uh, very clever to just have specific areas dedicated to the rack, rack covenant. Because if that was all the way through the that game, would the that worst. would have been frustrating. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was fun as like a little like off the beaten path distraction uh-huh. to try and get through these uh, these traps and puzzles and what have you. Yeah, as far as the uh, the various combat styles allowing for that, um, those optional different styles of gameplay. I I liked that there was so much variety there that it was available to me, but I wish that I had more of an opportunity to experiment with it, which is another criticism that the whole Souls series receives is that the upgrade path for weapons is so important that you know, you can you can pick up a really cool new weapon 3 quarters of the way through the game <laughs> and then yeah. not really know whether or not it's viable without, you know, sinking a huge amount of these expendable resources into it. And you know, I'd hate to fully upgrade something to realize, like, yeah, I'm still better off with my good old bastard sword. <laughs> yeah. Like decision yeah. paralysis. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I'd love to be able to play around with more of these, but they just they weren't viable because they were so uh, resource intensive to upgrade. Yeah, I think that's a situation where, and it's been the same throughout the series, where you, without hitting any spoilers, you want to try and get into one of the online wikis and just take a look at the upgrade mm. path and see what sort of damage it's doing by the end, because the number of times I pull a weapon out in Medulla and whether or not I've got the stats for it, I'll try it out. And obviously I can't wield that thing after, you know, you've, you've beaten a couple of bosses because you, you've not upgraded it. Um, but you try it out, see what the movesets are, and especially now that there's extra moves. Um, so you've got your rolling attack and heavy attack are different from the regulars and your mm. backstep attack and heavy attack are different. Um, and then obviously your power stance attacks on top of that. Um just change up so much it feels like you've got it feels more like and i hesitate to say this having played bubbler but it's on the way to a third person action game where you've got many more attacks at your disposal Mm -hmm. than just the standard light heavy attack and that's really all that's going to be viable if you're doing uh in dark souls uh, a sword and shield type build so yeah it just feels like they've upped the, the variety in that respect and that's exactly what they did for the covenants the only aspect of the co-op and PvP that disappointed me was the fact that I was, I think, not invaded at all outside of the bell tower and being pulled into someone else's world when mm. I was in either of the rat areas uh, in my first playthrough of the game. It just doesn't happen unless you're in, say, the the Blood Covenant and therefore Sentinels are going to be coming after you, etc. Um it just didn't happen for me. I guess maybe if I'd wandered, you know, into some sin somewhere along the line, but I didn't end up doing that, and it, I didn't get invaded. And to some people, that's great because invasions are frustrating. <laughs> they are supposed to be. I understand that, but that was a big part of the tension that was always yeah. in the back of my mind whenever I was wandering around an otherwise perfectly fine area. Suddenly, you're in Anorlondo, walking across a you know really narrow. Um, pathway up to a broken window and you get invaded and you're like, I have no idea if this person's behind me, in front of me, where yeah. they are. That Anno Londo run where you were trying to get to, to Ornstein and Smaug, yeah. you, yeah. you could guarantee that people oh, yeah. were just going to jump yeah. in and it's like, that was 
as frustrating as it was terrifying <laughs> as it was amazing. I kind of wonder if it's so much of a problem with there being so many covenants as it is uh, how they changed what's it called soul memory right yeah. so like if there's just too many algorithms for the behind the scenes you know coding and all that to kind of match everyone up at the same time because i know I, I tried anytime I, I tried invading in dark souls 2 it never worked it just never found anyone mm-hmm. and it's just a yeah. constant problem on on the flip side of that though i found it much easier to summon people in this game than any of the other oh, yeah, souls yeah. games yeah, yeah. Um, just whenever there was like a major boss battle, there were plenty of signs on mm-hmm. the floor. Um, not so much playing it now, just because I think um, a lot of people are just playing other games. But yeah. um, certainly when I was playing the PC version at release, uh, I, I could summon somebody for every single boss fight. And that definitely wasn't the case for Dark Souls 1. Mm-hmm. You know, this might sound like heresy to people who have uh, been <laughs> the Souls enthusiasts, but my... Uh, I played Dark Souls 2 the first time through entirely offline because my PlayStation 3 had trouble connecting with the router at the place that I was living at the time. And so I, I had no way of getting online. And so I had to play the entire game without uh, without Oof. summons, without invasions, without uh, even the little notes that people leave on the ground, which actually like I kind of like that because it makes it feel a little bit more lonely and a little bit more solitary in experience. Yeah. You don't even get those ghosts of mm-hmm. other players running through. Although on the flip side, when the game would put in those kind of like trick messages, um, mm. they would stand out even more. Cause I'm like, okay, yeah. there's no chance that that actually is a community message because I'm messaging. offline. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's a, it's, it's very different experience. Mm-hmm. So the, the last couple of things I want to mention, and I imagine we're, well, maybe we won't agree on these. Um, so, Limited enemy respawns. Um, I've heard mm. people say numbers anywhere between 8 and 15. As far as I'm concerned, it was always 12. So if you've been at a bonfire and you've carried on and killed an enemy, then died, rinse and repeat 12 times, that enemy no longer respawns. That raised a lot of eyebrows when it was first announced that that was going to be the case because people thought this was, along with the accessibility comment, this was yeah, yeah. Dark Souls being dumbed down, made too easy. The counterpoint to that was that by doing this, it stopped people just grinding enemies ad infinitum to the point where they were level, you know, 200 or whatever by the end of the game. At the time, I thought, yeah, okay, I can see that's the case. As long as there's still a sense of challenge there, and Mm. it's not just bang my head up against beating this enemy 12 times, beat the next one 12 times, and so on, until they're just not there anymore. I actually really like this addition I mean, there were a couple points at which it became kind of like an annoying necessity, like that uh, that bonfire on your way to the Lost Sinner that had three enemies that were like <laughs> right yeah. next to it. And so you pretty much had to just, you know, keep on killing them and respawning until they were gone. So you had a safe bonfire. So that was a little annoying. But I, I think that the the idea that I wouldn't spend time running back and forth to the bonfire to clear out areas, but just that in the back of my mind saying like, if I am just butting my head up against a wall over and over again, then I am making progress. Then it is going to make a concession to not necessarily make it easier for me, but uh, it it does something which I wish more games would do in that it it has that faith in me. Like I've already proven myself against this enemy 12 (laughs) times. Like I can beat him. Like 
stop making me do this over and over again. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can save a little bit more of your Estes for the boss or whatever you, you happen to be going up against. And so it kind of takes away a little bit of the uh, annoyance of making those multiple runs over and over. Mm. But with the bonfire aesthetics as well, you know, if you do want more mm, of it, yes. you can just dial it up a level as well and, and give yourself a bit <laughs> of extra challenge and potentially with a, a few more of the, the new game plus sort of caveats which I don't think is pretty neat but he didn't he didn't bother me at all I must admit I I just kind of wish there was a narrative reason for it maybe there is and I just missed it but it just kind of felt a little bit you know Dark Souls is a pretty gamey game but it felt a little bit too gamey to me to like do something as drastic as this and just if there was at least any kind of narrative reason for it it would have glossed over in my mind but I just I wasn't feeling this one I, I, yeah, I think mechanically, um, I don't really have an issue with it. But like Sean, um, one of the things I loved about Dark Souls 1 is that every mechanic kind of had a narrative explanation. So the fact that the enemies kept respawning, you were like, oh, okay, so they're undead, like I am. And just having all of that stuff feed back into Mm. narrative was part of why I fell in love with that game. And for it to just go, okay, well, 12 times they're done, just felt kind of like, well, what explanation Mm. is there for that? They're all union workers. Yeah, you're you're tired (laughs) of fighting them, aren't you? It's like, yeah, I am, but like, I don't know. I don't know if it's worth the trade-off. Yeah, I can consider myself a uh, a, a sadomasochist, I guess, or masochist in this respect, because <laughs> there was something nice about knowing that if I was going to beat Ornstein Small, it meant I had to make my way all the way there. Those um, giants on the way to that fight, yeah, they were a pain in the backside, but by the time I beat Ornstein Small, I knew that I'd bested every single enemy. Okay, um, that is about all the time we have for Dark Souls 2 in and of itself. What uh, we're going to do is read through some responses from the community, which I may be wrong, but seem like they are more related to Dark Souls 2 vanilla, if you like, rather than DLCs and then uh, Scholar of the First Sin. So I, I figured we'd put these here and kind of round off our feelings on the the game as it came out originally. And then what we'll do is uh, talk about the, the remaining uh, aspects that were added to after the game came out. So you can find on our forum threads that are put up in the week leading up to when we record so obviously that takes a little bit of working out with the schedule but head over to canonrinse.com slash forum and you will see at the very top stickies of the video game discussion uh, topic group you will see threads for upcoming games and if you want to leave your thoughts there then we will be delighted to read them out here um you can also, if you don't want to head over to the forum for whatever reason, or you're uh, just easier for you to email to podcast at com, And likewise, we will be delighted to take your input on the games. Sean, would you like to start us off with the first? Chopper says, try luring it out. Words to live and die by in Dark Souls 2. Whereas demons and dark ones level design showed great imagination and restraint, it's the enemy placement in Dark Souls 2 that keeps it from achieving the same heights. Too often, the designer's approach is to flood the level with enemies, often combined with an environmental hazard like water or obstacles to movement. It pushes the game too far in the direction of painstaking puzzler and is detrimental enough that large portions of the game seem like a slog in comparison to the previous games. I'm aware that Demons and Dark Souls have both been criticized for being punishing, time-wasting slogs, and that this is a subjective measure of its quality. But in this game, I think it is borne out. It's still an excellent game, but this flaw is sufficiently glaring to prevent it from achieving the greatness of its predecessors. 
Alex79UK says, Dark Souls 2 is one of a small group of games for which I booked the release day off work so that I could completely throw myself into the game. My expectations were so high as I made my way through the tutorial area and to Medulla. I was seriously impressed. It looked epic. I explored, did the usual Soulsian things, then pushed on to the Forest of the Fallen Giants. Everything was classic Dark Souls. Areas, enemies, weapons, lore. But halfway through the forest, I noticed something that didn't seem quite right. I'd not been following previews, so when I died and respawned at a bonfire, only to notice the enemy seemed to have vanished, I thought something was amiss. It wasn't until I posted about it on this very forum that I discovered it was an intended feature. I'm not sure what the point of it is, if I'm entirely honest, but it did spoil an important element of the first game for me. I spent hours grinding the rats of the depths for humanity, grinding high-level enemies to gain all important souls for upgrades, etc. And to have that taken away from me was a big disappointment. Still, it didn't spoil the game. Not really. Eventually I made it to the first boss, the last giant. He was suitably impressive, although alarm bells rang when he was felled with relative ease. Maybe I just got better at Souls games. To cut a rather lengthy story slightly shorter, that kind of summed up the game for me. It wasn't nearly as challenging as the first. I managed to first time several of the bosses in the game. As interesting as they were, they just didn't pose the same threat as the old ones. The game had several stunning areas. The pirate shanty town styling of No Man's Wharf was a particular highlight for me. But overall, the world seemed to lack the coherence that bound Lordran together. In fact, Dran Lake didn't even feel like one world to me, more like several completely independent areas traversed only by warping. All this might sound like I didn't enjoy the game. Well, let me tell you, I absolutely loved every second. It was never in a million years going to stand next to the original, but despite its shortcomings, Dark Souls 2 was still by far and away the best game I played last year. Todinho says, Dark Souls 2 had a lot to live up to as the follow-up to one of the best action RPGs ever made, and without the creative director of the previous games. In hindsight, the game was poised to disappoint its player base. It has to be said, though, it takes a special kind of game to be one of the most disappointing games of the year, while at the same time being one of the best. Despite its many shortcomings as a Souls game, it still managed to be one of the games I enjoyed most in 2014. The flaws of Dark Souls 2 are very tricky to identify at first. It looks like a Souls game, plays like a Souls game, but by the end doesn't feel quite like the others. It's not one or two big problems that ruin the game, rather a lot of tiny things that weigh the game down and make it less enjoyable. Now that I've had some time to think about it, I realize that my greatest problem with Dark Souls 2 is that it's just a very safe game. In many ways, there's nothing wrong with that, but Demons and Dark Souls always felt special and unique, despite their similarities. They weren't perfect, but they were willing to take risks by having really well-hidden areas, cutting players' lives in half, etc. Meanwhile, Dark Souls 2 may not suffer from any of the lowest points in the previous games, but it also doesn't reach the heights of those games did. There's no Ash Lake or Maiden Astrea. The closest the game gets to this is Dragon Airy, but even then, once you get past the pretty visuals, it's quite dull to be honest. If you want a better ex example, compare Dark Souls 2's torch system with the Tomb of the Giants. 
In one, a much-hyped aspect was neutered to the point of being irrelevant, and in the other, devs had no fear throwing you in a pitch-black area with no torches at all and letting you figure out by yourself. I hate the Tomb of the Giants, but I appreciate its existence a lot more now because, pardon the pun, it had a soul to it, while Dark Souls 2 doesn't feel like it has one. Thank you. Um, I'm going to read the next one, which is uh, relatively long, uh, but actually I've, I've had to edit this one and little bits of the others down just for time. So if you want to read the full the full comments by these people and others on the games, please do head over to the forum and uh, search up the Dark Souls thread over there. Uh, this one is from Roy42, who says, Dark Souls 2 is one of the most disappointing games I've played in recent memory, and the sheer numbers of, number of ways it falls short compared to its predecessor make me all the more annoyed that I find several mechanical differences more engaging. The list of things I enjoyed about Dark Souls 2 over Dark Souls is fairly short. Power stance, 60 frames per second, it's quick, has consistent online play, and the concept of the pursuer. And that's about it. General aesthetics, while decent, are decent in a very obviously manufactured way. You're bombarded with sound in almost every single area of the game, the music all blurs into a single vaguely bombastic tune, and the areas are all set up to deliberately give you a look at very pretty skyboxes to obfuscate how average the environments right in front of you look. The story, world, narrative and characters are bland and forgettable in Dark Souls 2. A cast of characters kept on coming back to Medulla, only they never left the area once they turned up, the exceptions being the Herald, who teleports to a couple of key locations for no real reason, Vengarl, who I'm sure would have gone and sat in Medulla for all eternity if he wasn't a disembodied head, Lucatil and Benhart, whose side quests are as boring as summon them a few times, and Patches and Lautrec 2.0, who I did genuinely enjoy seeing throughout my travels and did fret over when it reached the ultimate conclusion even though I had a feeling how it would end. One of the biggest issues I have with Dark Souls 2 is that it doesn't feel like it takes place in any sort of real world. You can see the Forest of Fallen Giants and the Tower of Flame from Medulla. They're both so far away that they're part of the skybox, yet after 90 seconds of walking you can get to either one. You go to different locations and the time of the day completely changes. Locations are utterly disconnected from one another. Lost Bastille, for example, or the run from Huntsman's Copse to Iron Keep. The game makes absolutely no effort to have coherency in its locations, and the locations themselves are incredibly boring and short. Almost every level is a single line with maybe one branching path or look back on itself. But like I said, I can't help but find the main gameplay loop incredibly compelling, and that frustrates me to no end. Mechanics like this should be in a game that's put together better, and I can only hope Dark Souls 3 can recapture the experience I had venturing into Darkroot Basin for the first time, and feeling very much like I was exploring a new world that I was completely unfamiliar with, possibilities and death spanning in every direction. Thank you very much for that. And CJ, would you like to close us out with the last one, please? Yeah, uh, Necomancer says, uh, Dark Souls 2 is a game that falls short of greatness by mere inches. It had significant improvements in some areas, PvP being the strongest and most notable upgrade over Dark Souls but I had a constant feeling of it being almost great and it suffered a lot in my mind for it. The combat still feels great. It's a strong mechanical improvement overall, but that wheels and spokes world uh, design led to a tremendous number of bonfires and a feeling of disconnectedness of the world. I don't really feel like the warp ability off the bat was a major problem, but it didn't help that feeling either. The bosses were okay. Some were potentially cool, but mishandled, like Pursuer, Dark Lurker, Smelter Demon, and Skeleton Lords. 
Some were just bad or boring. Covetous Demon, Demon of Song, Ancient Dragon and Dragon Riders, for example. There were some great ones, though, such as Looking Glass Knight, Defender, Stroke Watcher, uh, Sin, Fume Knight, Robber, Stroke Soldier, Stroke Explorer, Alon and Ivory King. Sadly, I found that the overall boss experience uh, was mostly forgettable. As a side note, I was incredibly disappointed by how easy Vendrick and Nishandra were. Probably the thing I felt most let down by was how the NPCs were handled. There was so much potential for really interesting story development with them all, but after their introduction, they never reacted to the world around again. Most notable in this are the blacksmith and daughter storyline, and that of Lucatiel. Lucatiel's handling in particular was depressing for me. I missed one of the meetings with her, so I was left with a really unfortunately vague perspective of her story. The best description of the story that I've seen was that it feels like Dark Souls was written in full, then chunks removed to create the general feeling of a whole world that you had to fill in the gaps, while Dark Souls 2 seems to be a story with holes written into it in the first place. Good game, worth playing as a fan of the Souls series, but absolutely my least favourite of the Souls-born games by a significant margin. I think I dislike it more as time goes on, and I replay Dark Souls strict Bloodborne and keep thinking about all the potential that Dark Souls 2 had. All right, excellent. Um, what we're going to do with three-word reviews, we had 42 by the time I put all these notes together. That's more than we have had, I think, for any other uh, game that we have covered. So thank you very much for the incredible response. So what we're going to do is we're going to split it into two groups um, just to kind of break up the uh, the chunk that we've got. I did want to cover everyone's though, so thank you very much to each and every person who submitted a three-word review. You can do that on the day that we record. We tend to put out a tweet from at Kanan Rince uh, requesting and obviously naming the game that we are requesting for for your reviews of, uh, of said game in three words. And we begin, if CG, you could start us off, please. Yeah, Alex79UK says, Dark Souls Light. Todinho says, By the Numbers. Andy Corrigan says, Bloodborne is better. Friend of the show, Brad Galloway says, Admirably Epic Adventure. Dave Clem says, Agree with Brad Galloway. <laughs> <laughs> Gary Casey says, Lacking Miyazaki Genius. Sean Bell says, Shut it, whiners. New, uh, DM says, amazing with co-op. Mike Susky, reheat 60 seconds. Jakob G42 says, exciting, then underwhelming. Minute 5070 uh, says, let down at first. Munchies the Wolf, uh, Roxy, says, praise the sun. Zach Tom says, lava above windmill. <laughs> Matthew Lucas, epic, engaging, infuriating. <laughs> Dominic Doberton says sadly slightly soulless patrick smith says is that ornstein is that paddy we say to him <laughs> <laughs> ellis murrell says out of ideas pete haynes says can't finish it hands in the jam expectations too high chris connolly best souls pvp uh, richard nike says play the dlc and play the dlc we will Sorry, I couldn't resist <laughs> leading that one into, into this. Um, so nice. what I'm going to suggest, the, the DLC, as far as I'm aware, all directed by Yui Tanimura and certainly Scholar of the First Sin Edition, directed by him as well. Tanimura takes a lot of ire from the fans who played the original release of Dark Souls 2. Um, but in a recent podcast, Epic Namebro alluded to how Tanimura, who's working on Dark Souls 3 with Miyazaki, saved Dark Souls 2. 
Um, in the Dark Souls 2 design works, uh, translated by Peter Barnard 1984.tumblr.com, Tanamori says, um, yes, Dark Souls, actually, Dark Souls 2 actually went through quite a troubled development process. Due to a number of factors, we were actually forced to rethink the entire game midway into development. We really had to go back to the drawing board and think once more about what a Dark Souls game should be. It was at that point that I took on my current role, overseeing the entirety of the game, including the art direction. To ensure we created the game both we and the fans wanted, it was completely necessary. But it did, of course, create a problem. We had to decide what to do with the designs and maps that had been created up to that point. Ideally, we'd start again from scratch, but of course, we were under time constraints. So instead, we had to figure out how to repurpose the designs in the newly reimagined game. This meant everything from deciding new roles for characters to finding new ways to slot locations in the, into the world map. This unusual development cycle faced us with an entirely different set of problems. And looking back on the project as a whole, it was at times arduous. Although I'm confident that none of this will be felt by the players and I'm completely satisfied with the final product. So while I don't think we need to dwell on it too much, in the interest of giving a full count of the development process, it's something we can't avoid touching on. Now, the DLC is Tanamura's first foray as solo director yeah. and was universally praised by all that who played through it. Uh, the maps are stunning, the sprawling, it's deliciously conniving and evil. The bosses are blissful swines. There's tons of ideas in there. Um, if there was any sign that a little genuine magic had returned to, to Dark Souls 2, proper lightning in a bottle, for me, this was it. And when Tanamura then returned to Dark Souls 2 with Scholar of the First Sin... That for me continued the process, and I hate the fact that he's the focal point for the people that are disappointed with Dark Souls Two. When really he's the guy that kind of pulled together what was originally there, ran into this DLC, and then had so much pride as to wanting to do, in, in my opinion, do it properly and look, you know, with a, a bladed opinion, sort of uh, go through the original game and um, and polish it up. I I just think that the guy deserves. A better rep than he's getting, and I, mm. I appreciate how honest he is in that um, that mm. little piece from from the design works as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I I absolutely agree. And I, I mean, speaking personally, I think the DLC is not only the high point of this game, but I I think a lot of it's the high point of the entire Souls series. I think mm -hmm. Broom Tower is without doubt for me the best designed area in this entire game uh just it it added that verticality and maze-like structure that was missing from the main game to me and just the boss battles it like sir alon specifically <laughs> felt really reminiscent of something like artorius and came dangerously close to being as good as an artorius encounter um the the crown of the ivory king the entrance into the old mm, yes. chaos is oh, an man. iconic moment yeah. for me just it's just so cinematic and the mechanic of trying to find all these knights and bring them into the battle with you so that you could fight all these chaos you know chaos knights and stuff like that that was all fantastic um i really have no complaints about the dlc i think if you've played the original dark souls and you haven't experienced the dlc it's a must play for yeah, me i think yeah. it's toe to toe with the best stuff in the soul series you know that point with you you saying about the old chaos where um you're going through that um they the, the crown of the ivory king and 
um, you meet the um, the uh, the knights, and they just get up out of that chair and then sort of disappear. But when you get to the to the to the point of that boss battle, yeah. and they're in the chairs and they stand up, and you <laughs> walk up to that point and fall down that massive tunnel, and then there's the huge sprawl. Of, of like fire and flames and um, even the mechanics of the, the different portals and those knights sort of sealing the portals depending on how many you've got. Mm. Honestly, I went through that boss battle a million times to get those Lois souls and just didn't uh, didn't regret any of it. Loved it. And the boss, to me, I know some people said that it reminded them a little bit of Gwyn, but it reminded me a lot of Artorias. And I love the kind of almost like death metal, like, that he'd, that he'd speak at the time. <laughs> belter, pure belter. I, I, I think for me, like every, apart from maybe a couple, but um, every boss battle in in these uh, DLC packs is memorable in mm. a way that none none of the bosses from the main game are for me. Mm. Um, none. I, I don't think. I don't think the bosses in the main game quite reach the depths of, like, uh, the bed of chaos. I don't Mm. think any of them are that awful. Mm. But none of them were as memorable as uh, Calamite or Artorius and and stuff like that. But for, for, you know, the first DLC to have, like, Sin, that dragon battle, and and immediately be reminded of Calamite and that encounter, Mm. Mm -hmm. and it just be the dragon battle that was missed. Because the ancient dragon fight in, uh, in the main game is both boring and sadistic yeah. um the, the, the 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 dragon doesn't have many moves like in terms of what it does but all of them are pretty much one hit kills mm-hmm. yeah. so it's just it's just like uh, run away just like war of attrition it's a war of attrition whereas of sin it feels like this dynamic encounter mm. where you're like right now how, how do i counter this how do i counter <laughs> that and oh he's exposing a weak point now i can fight him it was just it was just after the you know the disappointment of every single boss in Dark Souls 2 to have all these encounters we haven't mentioned the fume knight the fume knight's oh, amazing God, yeah. as well yeah. yeah and and just all of it every single one apart from that stupid boss fight with Havel and and yeah, the archer exactly. mm. that was the only one that annoyed <laughs> me but every, every other one was just breathtaking i, I like the fact that even that one, and, and even the rehash of Smelter Demon. And, and even the fact that, um, oh, is it Nadalia? No, Alana, that's a rehash of Nishandra. But yeah. that, even that felt like that boss fight done right. There was more to it. Right, there was yeah. a surprise. Yeah, 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 it was punishing. Yeah, it was a pain when you died for the 10th time because you had four skeletons running around after you and her <laughs> spells coming, after, coming yeah. at you as well. All of them felt like they had some wrinkle to them that really surprised me. E- even the the three-on-one with the explorer, soldier, and, and hunter. Um, it felt like, okay, I've got to think about this. I've got to separate my um, separate my enemies. I've got to use the terrain to my advantage, try and work out how to take them down. It, it's, it wasn't an outstanding boss fight in terms of being memorable. Like, uh, as you said, Fume Knight just floored me. I would have yeah, run yeah. into that fight a million times until I beat that guy. It didn't take that long, but I would have. Um, and yeah... A lot of the boss fights, even the Smelter Demon rehash. Um, Smelter Demon was one of those fights in the main game that actually I do remember. I do remember yeah, going yeah. into that fight with Lucatil alongside me and uh, and battering against this demon that I couldn't quite get the hang of and you know was difficult, etc. 
Um, but they changed enough about the Smelter Demon when you fought him again in Broom Tower. Um, the timing was slightly different, so you had to be on your toes regarding that. You know, if you played it exactly the same way, you wouldn't have survived that fight. You needed to be paying attention. Um, and, and so, yeah, there was there was a little bit of kind of reuse, but the stuff they didn't reuse was wonderful. I guess for the sake of balance, also as well as the reuse of bosses, we should say that a lot of people have problems with um, the lightning horses or lightning reindeer in the um, the crown of the, the ivory king. Frozen Ponyland. Again, yeah, it's frustrating, but but I actually <laughs> really liked working out how I was yeah. going to do that and working I out agree. that, yeah, you go through it with two summons and then you get rid of them before you go into the boss fight. Uh, yeah. See, I, I didn't do it like that. I, I changed yeah. my I changed my armor completely. I got uh, high lightning resistance. I had my fire door, mm. um, and just kind of really thought on the flight at that point. I was I started using a spear so I could keep mm. the ponies at distance. Proper proper love that run up. And mm. um, if there's anything that the DLCs do, like in uh, the, the Frozen Ponyland, and especially in the um, the Crown of the Iron King, is because you've got so many uh, bonfires in the main game, I think that you're, you're always sort of half a step away from being able to kind of save and go back to Medulla. I think that with those aspects that I mentioned, that this was the first time that I felt lost and I was worried yeah. as to where the next one was. And particularly in uh, Crown of the Iron King, there's a sense of, have I been here? Do I go up? Do I go down? <laughs> yeah. What What if this leads me to there? And this real sense of paranoia and also that verticality reminded me a little Theories bit of... like mazes for the first time, yeah. Yeah, that verticality sort of really, you know, sort of tightened a knot in my stomach in the way that it sent me back to the original Tomb Raider where you got that mm, yeah. that massive bit with all the uh, the different Norse gods and those rooms and feeling like you could fall off and, oh man, mm. the architecture of those... Um, those lifts as well. They weren't just a lift; they were the big stone bearded giants that were that were attached to it. Gorgeous design, really mm-hmm. gorgeous design. I think one of my favorite encounters in the DLC was in the mm-hmm. Crown of the Sunken King. All of those mm-hmm. kind of ghostly knights that you had to find the bodies of mm-hmm. and then desecrate yeah, those yeah, before you can actually yeah. um, take on these these knights to begin with. Like that is a terrifying. Uh, making that one run with everybody chasing you into that room mm-hmm. that had like yeah. four or five bodies <laughs> in it. Uh, I had yeah. no idea that was there until much much later. I was yeah. really trying to take those those guys on and just sort of mm-hmm. chip away at the at the health. The experimentation in general is just really impressive. Uh, another example of that for me is uh, the Ivory King's pet, that boss fight where Ooh, yeah. you can Evil. just stumble into that arena and have no idea what's going on. You're losing health and you're getting battered about, but you can't see a boss. You can't can't see anything. Um, of course, you've gone down the wrong path. You have to go down another one, and then mm. eventually you can see this tiger that's attacking mm. you. But I just thought that was a really clever way of um, changing up a boss fight where, you know, it. it, it I mean, it, it, it was basically uh, a way of... Uh, making a boss fight into a barrier going you cannot pass here go, you know go somewhere else but it just made it more scary it made the entire encounter terrifying can we tip the hat towards um the crown of the sunken king and the the puzzle aspect with the uh the rising and falling buildings yeah. That. Yeah. i could not stand that if i'm talking <laughs> <Why not? laughs> only because um it just I liked it as a as a puzzle element to to the landscape. I thought that was actually all really cool. But then I I was just thinking like, 
why does this even exist? Like, why would anyone <laughs> build this? Like, why would you have to uh, riot, you know, lift up an entire, you know, pillar just to walk across some roofs of a house to get to some stairs? Like, it just, it doesn't make <laughs> any logical sense to me. So that throws me way out. But, uh, you know, to give it some credit, I did like how, you know, you'd be on like a ledge and there's no way up and you have to just kind of, you know, look as hard as you can for some kind of little switch to, uh, to, to set you up on your way. But I just, the logical, the illogical nature of it just, yeah. uh, just couldn't, it drove me nuts. It was fun using the rising buildings as a weapon against your enemies as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah that's that kind of cool. cool. Yeah. It shook things up wonderfully though, I thought. Sure, totally. Um, yeah. it, was, it was very different design-wise and mm-hmm. gameplay-wise. And again, I think that Tanimura on his, his first solo piece of direction it's, it, there's some fantastic design between yeah. all three of them and also totally. thematically between the uh, the DLCs as well. The fact that when the crowns are united, mm-hmm. there is the uh, the answer to stopping hollowing. Plus the extra messages you get from Vendrick if you go and, uh, you go and interact with the memory in his chamber. Oh, there's also the thing, um, this comes back to Scholar, but um, there's... Uh, a part in the, uh, the the final DLC where if you get an item and your um, the world starts to thaw and you you start to see the um, the, the the invisible people that are there, <laughs> if you then in Scholar if you then go back to the Shaded Woods you can see all of the phantoms. Oh, really? Yeah, it's really cool. We'll get on to the Scholar specific stuff in a second, but all of these feel like they go together because the DLCs weren't changed when Scholar came out Mm. Um, that edition uses the dlcs exactly as they are it doesn't remix enemy placement anything like that and that is a really um that's really indicative to me of the fact that um as as late as february 2014 the producer was saying we have no plans for dlc at the moment we're not ruling it out but there's nothing planned Mm -hmm. that might have been a line but by july crown of the sunken king came out and then a month later Iron King, a month later, Ivory King. Whatever the situation, to turn around content or DLC of, of this standard where each is self-contained but brings back a lot of the level design, that vertical level design that means you're looping back on areas one, two, three hours later. Yeah, they started it um, directly after uh, Dark Souls 2 was finished, so mm-hmm. I don't know if they got pieces in place before that, but that That's is a, a huge, as you were saying, a huge turnaround for such specific direction. design mm-hmm. and such such brilliant visuals. So yeah, I, I think the reason that I suggested we cover all of these at the same time um, is because the DLC feels very much, a lot of stuff that they did with, um, with invaders, NPC invaders and mm-hmm. summons, then crossed back over into the game in Scholar of the First Sin, and as you yeah. say, CJ, with the Eye of the Beholder kind of bleeding over into the main game. There was stuff like that happening that really f- made it feel like this was all more coherent and more thought through um, than I'd previously seen. Well, that covers the, uh, the DLC, but um, earlier this year, uh, the 2nd of April, right after Bloodborne was released, um, which will probably be important for uh, determining how many people played that amongst people listening. Um, Scholar of the First Sin Edition was released, and that was the the current-gen version which brought the game to Xbox One, PlayStation 4, and DirectX 11 on uh, Windows PC, which is significant because it's a different version. Um, there wasn't just an update to the original PC version. Um, the, the additional 
uh, NPC and boss fight and the improved matchmaking came earlier to the, the older versions of the game, but the new version is what I played uh, of this. And so that's what I'd like to kind of kick off things talking about because it encompasses all the changes that were made. And they were pretty vast in terms of changing a game around and not just remaking the entire thing. Um, they kind of did everything but in terms of it feels very different to me. Um, just to quickly run through the changes, improved matchmaking, as I say, they kind of tempered and, and fiddled a bit with soul memory as a matchmaking uh, barometer. Um, added in um, a new NPC, the Scholar of the First Sin, and a, a, bo a new boss, final boss fight, I should say. Um, so uh, the, uh, the Scholar pops up throughout the game, kind of talking to the player, reveals cryptically some stuff about what's going on. Um, and then you fight that that character at the end, who challenges you to find a different uh, way to to end the the cycle or to to renew the cycle, I should say. It's a great further connection to the original Dark Souls mm. as well, because a lot of his a lot of his di his dialogue back to that stuff, really yeah. really ties yeah. things together. Yeah, which which is as mentioned in his uh, or as described in his name, he is the scholar of the first sin, the first be sin being generally referred to as the attempt to recreate the first flame um, is, is the first sin. That's the lost sinner connection, etc. There's a the, there's a wonderful piece of dialogue which uh, which I originally heard on uh, Bonfire Side Chat um, and which really stuck with me, which was uh, how you grapple without falter with this dreadfully twisted world. Peace grants men the illusion of life. Shackled by falsehoods, they yearn for love, unaware of its grand illusion, until the curse touches their flesh. We are bound by this yoke, as true as the dark that churns within men. All men trust fully the illusion of life, but is this so wrong? A construction, a facade, and yet a world full of warmth and resplendence. Young Hollow, are you intent on shattering the yoke, spoiling this wonderful falsehood? Yeah. Now, when I, when I first heard that, I heard yoke as in... Uh, it's spelled as in Y O K. I first heard it as as yoke as in Y O L K, <laughs> and I thought of, I thought of this shell this this shell of a world, and like um, you know your 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 choice to give it life or destroy it as as uh, as that. So that that really stuck in my mind, and then when I realised it was the other way around, I was like, well, I'd still kind of like my version. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a nice summation that uh, particular piece. A nice summation of a lot of the themes that this game tries to take forward from the original Dark Souls mm. uh, and, and to, to bring to the fore. And that's what this NPC was all about. Um, just quickly also, we uh, in the newer versions, there's now six-player online. Uh, the graphics and lighting um, were changed and improved uh, specifically to try and reintroduce some of the torch mechanics that we talked about not really being all that significant in the original game. And uh, most significantly, I think, right from the off, the enemy and NPC placement just mm -hmm. changes all over. NPC summons, I should say, and invasions um, rather than actual NPCs. But the uh, the enemy placement is vastly different, I think it's fair to say, across large portions of the game. There's some places it doesn't change that much, but a lot of places it does, which keeps you on your toes. Can we give a tickle to the to the return of the lighting engine as well, and the the, yeah, yeah, the way that that light forms a uh, light and darkness forms a a really big part of uh, Scholar of the First Sin and, and that Dark Souls Two world. Yeah, for first time I went down in Forest of the Fallen Giants to the little sort of annex towards the back. Oh man, mm. yes. Um, I forget the name of the bonfire that's down there, but 
It's the one that was in the comic, and it's the one that you barely need to worry going to that has lots of turtle soldiers in it. Um, mm-hmm. And there's now a new invader down there who will mess you up if you aren't, well, even if you are ready for it um, that early in the game. And uh, going down there, you now have a summonable NPC who will cast light around you. Um, otherwise, you have to be carrying a torch. There is no, you can't just turn up the brightness or contrast and see. They actually change it so that it, it basically reduces the draw distance as well, I think, and, and makes it feel claustrophobic and not just dark. Mm-hmm. Uh, dark I love that it's that, that they lead in not with just sort of a um, the equivalent of a torch being in there, but the, the magical light, that big blue glow mm-hmm. that goes sort of right the way down that corridor and the little tubby lad that casts it just like heads straight, <laughs> straight down the tunnel and starts firing out <laughs> magic at the same time. Uh, just pure, pure belter. Mm. I think the remixed enemy placement, uh, it works really well in certain areas. Yeah, kind of like, cool. I love how they took the like uh, partially invisible soldiers from the Shaded Woods and then put them in the hmm. uh, in yeah. the foggy area of the Shaded Woods and put them in a different area of the Shaded Woods. And so they oh, just look yeah. like the like the ghosts that you would see yeah. in normal gameplay. And so you idea. kind of ignore them at first until they start attacking you. <laughs> and then you realize like, oh, now I've got to watch out. And then the rest of the game, I was constantly, anytime I saw a ghost, I'd be um, you know, <laughs> on edge. But uh, sometimes I feel like it it kind of made the game... Uh, a little bit worse in some areas. Like I kind of miss having mm-hmm. the real like sullen knights just sitting around randomly throughout the world. I, I felt felt like they um, they felt like real world weary, you know, uh, without a home mm-hmm. kind of soldiers yeah, yeah, that were yeah, um, soldiers, the that knights, wouldn't yeah. attack until you attacked them. And I, I thought that was a really neat dynamic. But instead, now mm-hmm. they're just kind of buffing the Tower of Flame. I love that those that those phantoms in um, in the shaded woods. When you when they replace sort of the uh, the lion guard, they they just sort of they look knackered. They're slumped yeah. against trees and and are either uh, despondent or <laughs> uh, tired or yeah. Um, yeah. I just thought that was a, a wonderful piece of uh, wonderful piece of design. Mm. Yeah, a lot of the the changes to the enemies that I was most impressed with was the way they fed into narrative. Mm-hmm. Seeing the soldiers in the forest of the giants attacking the former mm, yes. giants as they yeah. formed into trees <laughs> was really impressive, um, and and it just made that kind of uh, you know how hollows are kind of repeating the actions mm. that they uh, did in their former lives. Just mm. having that. Having those soldiers attack long dead giants was really uh, just narratively compelling, and mm-hmm. and also having some of the um, the guards who that who you encounter in Drang Lake Castle outside some of the king's doors mm. um, also yeah. made that oh right yeah. okay so these are actually connected to that area they're not just randomly put here he's actually fought to send out some of his soldiers to protect these doors. Mm. Um, all of that stuff was really impressive. You've got the uh, the bandaged guys from uh, the Lost Bastille, which now feels uh, fortified on the uh, piloting the ship that that brings people sort of to mm. and from the mm. uh, No Man's Wharf. And and also, I love the fact that you are being pursued across Finally. the entire yeah. game, <laughs> and the the yeah. fact that he keeps turning up and turning up and turning up in uh, in the Bastille is just horrendously wonderful <laughs> big love for me was the uh the new npc summons i think they're fantastic uh i love that the majority of them are female 
Um, mm-hmm. They're funny at times with the way that they uh, they would say hello or yeah, gesture um, to you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, or uh, Jester Thomas, where he leaves the uh, the boss battle in Earth and Peak, will cast pyromancy and then disappear with the explosion. <laughs> yeah. um, you've got uh, Bashful Ray, who will who's dressed like a ninja, but when he's not fighting, will bring out binoculars and pervert the level. <laughs> um, we even noticed something uh, the other day when um, I went into Earth and Peak and the bit. Mm-hmm where you light the windmill. Yeah. If you bring through, um, uh, I can't remember it is, uh, she, she points towards the windmill. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then when you light it, she sort of punches the air. Yeah, um, yeah. I would, I would rather have an NPC summon than, uh, the, uh, bring through a regular person. And also, <laughs> where was it? Um, there was the, uh, the run up to the Duke's Dear Freya, and I summoned in Manhunter O'Hara. Yes. Like, yeah. fantastic look, that giant sort of, uh, that giant's bow. And when I entered near to the boss room, and she walked in there, and I just got the torch, sort of trying to light things up, and she was picking off spiders from <laughs> distance. That made, yeah. I mean, whilst, whilst a lot of the boss, boss battles can seem a little easier with the fact that you can bring uh, new people in, at least until like the DLC. It felt more epic in scope and more widescreen because there was there was something more going on than just just fighting a a boss. But I I love them to pieces. I think mm. they're fantastic. Yeah. yeah, I mean, in the original game, they changed some stuff in New Game Plus, so you didn't. You, yeah, you were extra yeah. kind of red phantom enemies, although they weren't invaders, um, and stuff like Freya would appear earlier in the level, and that sort of stuff. It feels like they brought all of that forward into the first run through of the game, which. When I first played Dark Souls 2, I felt like New Game Plus was what I wanted first time. In the demo, they'd had the um, the two Red Phantom um, kind of big executioner uh, guys on the lower path when you're walking towards the Skeleton Lord's boss. And that was in New Game Plus. And, and it felt like this time around, they said, okay, let's add that stuff in. Let's change things up. Let's keep people on their toes. Mm. And... Yeah, it's, it was more surprising than my first playthrough of the first game had been, um, even though I knew the level, I knew the areas, and knew how to play the game. Also, it was properly terrifying the first time that the bonfire exploded when you try to light it. Oh, man, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. 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 I love yeah. That, I love that they, um, there are two enemies in the game who aren't what they seem. There's one in No Man's Wharf, and there's one in The Undead Crypt, where they're holding uh, a torch, mm-hmm. and if you don't kill them, and these are these are dark areas anyway, if you don't kill them, they will light your way throughout the mm-hmm. entire level. They'll follow you through. So there was one in the Undead Crypt who would follow you through the very first hall mm-hmm. with the torch you came across. He would follow mm-hmm. you through and end up triggering the um, him and, and his soldiers to attack. Um, but yeah, they took that idea, and I love the fact that in No Man's Wharf, yeah, there, there's a hollow there that if you actually... Don't attack him. Um, he will just follow you through. He won't be hostile, and he'll just do that. And, and who knows why? Because that was his role in his his previous life, and now he's a horror. He just does it all the time. We uh, named him Nigel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, lots of lovely touches. We've got our own summaries to come. Um, but what I would like to do before we get to that point, we have another batch of three-word reviews kindly supplied by your good selves, the listeners, uh, which we are going to run through uh, in the same order again. So CJ, if you would kick us off, please. Uh, Curtis Bonnell says, my favourite one. The Hex says, missing Miyazaki's touch. Connor G95 says, disappointing, but all right. Phil Carr, same, same, different. 
Sebular says, Turl up, poke. Colm Sheridan says, I'm too scared. Eric Jones also succumbed to fear. He says, I gave up. Nekimancer says, almost great. Almost. Nelson, aka Vidgames Bible, missing one's world. Global Mega Dude says, lacking the atmosphere. New Fluss says, must have remastered. James Ruffin says, oh no, again? Richard Atwood says, worth dying for. Scooby Villain, overwhelmingly incredible adventure. Sean McGavin says, second rate imitation. Uh, Glenn Mooney says, where's the majesty? Siam Ahmed says, underappreciated redheaded stepchild. <laughs> and yes, that's six words, and yes, you managed to get them in, so I'm not <laughs> Martin Baker says, good, not iconic. Sid Durney, third soul's platinum. Gary Butterfield says, short story compilation. Cole Ross says, power begets tragedy. Thank you to one and all for providing your... Uh, Far more varied opinions on the game than I expected. I, I thought these might be incredibly negative, but mm. definitely lots of positivity in there, which is great to see. Okay, well, we have spent two hours talking about this game. It's now time for us to wrap up our feelings on the game in its entirety, uh, obviously, all, all versions, all DLC, and the original experience that we had. Sean, would you like to kick us off, please? Dark Souls 2 and Scholar of the First Sin all together is the best disappointing game I've ever played in my life. Um, there's, I was, it's probably very unfair the expectations that I put on Dark Souls 2 because Dark Souls 1 is, as Josh, as you said, it's in my opinion as well, it's a masterpiece and so was Demon Souls and, um, you know, that's two for two and when you're going to make the third one, you're going to even call it Dark Souls 2, like it's... I don't know, it's got to stand up. And for me, generally speaking, it doesn't. Like the the level design, as we mentioned, just is incomprehensible. And the the enemy design is very unimaginative compared to the previous uh, games. And um, the boss design is just not good at all. <laughs> like Covetous Demon is just the worst uh, boss battle I've had, seen in a long time. Um but Scholar of the First Sin does uh, make a lot of very positive changes. And the DLC, while it kind of sucks that it was DLC, so you had to pay extra for it. And, you know, I feel like all that should have been in the game in the first place. But the combat mechanics are much more improved. And I really like how that all played together. And But, man, it's just there's so many, like, bad things or so many disappointing things, I should say, uh, that... Uh, just bring this title down for me and um i'm not sure how i'm feeling about dark souls 3 i might wait for reviews yeah it's just uh it's generally a disappointing game for me but still not not a bad game at all so yeah i i feel very similar to that mechanically this game uh makes some very smart moves combat feels more like i remember combat feeling from the the first two games than necessarily it actually does um they made it feel quicker and uh and more the diversity of builds you can have in this game in terms of uh, costumes and, and uh, actual weapons that you're toting um, just massively expanded. And I liked a lot of that. And, and even playing vanilla, you know, stuff like Mytho when you're fighting her and, and you might have accidentally gone up there and fought her in a pool full of poison that's killing you and healing her. Um, stuff like that. They, there's stuff they do with boss fights, even in the vanilla game. It's it's interesting. It's, it's a bit gimmicky, but there's an interesting take on making sure that the player's paying attention to surroundings and all that stuff that, that 
the Souls games have been great at doing. What I loved, and it's not what everyone loves, I know plenty of people who don't like this about Dark Souls, is the world in terms of the physical space, the level design, and the world that is built. And those just didn't shine through when I played through the game originally, um, to the point where I wasn't sure I wanted to try the DLC. People started saying it was good. I dove in, and from that point on, I was absolutely interested in seeing what was going on, you know. Um, invasions where there's multiple invaders, but you don't know that until you've beaten the first one and you're climbing your way up Broom Tower to up the stairs and running into more and more of the same. Um, just aspects like that where they're subverting what the player thinks they know about this game and this series. That could have been there from the beginning, and it's such a shame that it wasn't because um, I would have felt much, much differently about this game. Not that I felt it was a bad game, but I would have felt much differently, much more positive about this game had I played Scholar of the First Sin right off the bat. Um, so it is a, a big shame that it had, had that kind of lull before it really rose to what this game should have been. Um, but I am now glad that I've had the chance to see glimpses of what Yui Tanimura had planned for this game and hopefully what he and Hidetaka Miyazaki can bring to Dark Souls 3. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's all I've got to say. Ryan, how about yourself? It's pretty common to call the first Dark Souls a masterpiece, and you know, I, I would agree with that. It is a very, very great game that I, I enjoy very much. And so going into this one, though, I think I enjoy playing it more just on like a moment-to-moment basis. It's a lot easier and a lot more scaled back. And so I, I feel like I, I feel very comfortable playing it. Like it's a like it's a nice way to spend an afternoon relaxing, which is probably antithetical to what the Souls series is supposed to do to you. It's supposed to make you scared and on edge. But you know, I've been through Dark Souls 2 so many times that it is like a genuinely like zen calming experience for me to go through these levels I'm so familiar with against these enemies that aren't terribly demanding until you get to the DLC. And I think I will go back and replay this one probably more times than I'll go back and replay the original Dark Souls because there are some kind of bottleneck moments in the old Dark Souls that I just don't want to have to do again. The Lake <laughs> Hydra fight, I don't want to have to do again. Couldn't have said it better myself. Yeah, I think there's, there's aspects of this. The lack of threat when I played through first time felt like it was missing. But yeah, no, I, I know what you mean. Diving back into Scholar of the First Sin, I was delighted to be running through this game towards a platinum trophy again okay josh i mean like like i said at the beginning um, of this podcast i think i really benefited from lowered expectations not only just myself thinking there's no way that they can top the first dark souls i, I mean for me the, the dark souls wasn't just like a great experience but it was kind of a seismic shift in what I thought games were capable of and also kind of my tastes um like it delivered an experience that I didn't even know I wanted from games and um for that like just Dark Souls 1 will, will never be topped um so I I already had the thought okay there's no way they're going to top Dark Souls 2 and then the fact that I waited for the PC version met, meant that I got to see the change in response to this game going from high praise to, um, you know, a, a great level of disappointment. And so I, so I went into this game and 
I did notice the things that were off, but because I was expecting it, the the things that the game did well shone out a bit more for me. The PvP I think is excellent. Um, the as everyone has mentioned, that just the general controls feel really great, um, and I think there are moments where visually it's uh, absolutely breathtaking. Uh, th- that said, I think the DLC is kind of the reason to play this game for me now. Um, just the Broom Tower is one of the best design locations in all of the Souls games, and I think Sir Alon, Fume Knight are just up there with some of the best boss battles that have ever graced this series. And and for me, like uh, the Scholar of the First Sin, although I haven't completed it yet, uh, has gone some ways to fixing some of the issues that I had with Dark Souls 2. Not all of them, but it it does feel like the version that everyone should be playing. Um, yeah, Dark Souls 2 is a great game that unfortunately had to follow up a masterpiece. Well said. Okay, CJ, I know you have very, very fond uh, memories and feelings associated with uh, with playing this game, specifically Scholar of the First Sin, so I thought it would be a nice moment for you to be able to kind of finish up our summaries. Would you like to let us know how this game affected you. The point I fell in love with this game, gestated a little just before Scholar of the First Sin, provided this this itch, something that stayed in my mind and had me teasing back at the original Dark Souls 2 beforehand. Um, one of the Twin Humanities listeners, Neo Loki, shared a bond they had with the game, uh, one with real-world resonance. Uh, they spoke of their connection to Lucatil, who'd arrived in Drang Lake searching for her brother, yet as you progress through the mind, you steady her. She's losing her mind to the curse, forgetting why she's here, but she remembers you. Uh, Neo-Loki spoke of their stepfather, who'd been an absolute hero to to them throughout their entire life, but was now suffering with Alzheimer's and no longer remembered the time that they shared together when they were young. It was at that point I started to see the curse as not a cliched, curse is blighting the land but one that was making a people lose their minds, their memory of what it is to live, to be. Given this, a king had gone to extraordinary diabolical lengths to stop it. He travelled across the seas to procure an item to animate the lifeless. He'd split and spliced the human psyche, the immortal dragons, all looking for an answer. And the tragedy is he failed. And when you find him, the man is a husk, dragging a sword behind him. It's at this point that the rabbit hole began. I fell in love with Drangley. The opera became choral, it became important. I couldn't shake it. This is continual, it's ongoing, and I truly, truly adore this game. Uh, perhaps it's just me, but rather than the story being neither here nor there as it is to many, it's, it's with me, it's still growing, it stays on my mind. Uh, with Scholar, it starts to knit and bind connections between the levels, making Drang Lake feel like a whole interconnected world, and I find myself falling ever deeper. Uh, at this point, I genuinely can't shake it, and I don't want to. It's this beautiful, bewildering, blinding enigma, and I'm absolutely in deep romantic love with it. Uh, it may well now be my favourite game ever. There is no path beyond the scope of light, beyond the reach of dark. What could possibly await us? And yet we seek it insatiably. Such is our fate. Thank you very much and that's a a perfect representation of why it's important not to look over 
aspects of a game that don't resonate with us but might just resonate more than we can imagine with other people. It has been an incredibly intense podcast to try and fit all of our feelings about this game into two hours. Uh, thank you for sticking with us and also thank you very much to Joshua Garrity, Ryan Heyman and Sean O'Brien from Canaan Rins and a very big thank you to our special guest from Twin Humanities, CJ Black. Would you like to tell us where we can find you and your brother with another hair colour, Paddy Smith? Uh, firstly, thank you very much for having me. You know, this That's game up. means means the world to me. So it's uh, it's you know it's been nice jamming with you and, and chatting with you and hearing different opinions. So thank you very much for that. Um, you can find us on uh, www.twinhumanities.com or at twinhumanities on Twitter, uh, where we do Dark Souls stuff, and we've got a few other podcasts where we do like, Destiny and general all kind of game stuff. But uh, you know, if you want to trip on down there and. Listen to me with my uh, my ginger brother jam some Dark Souls. That'd be groovy, Tom. It's always a pleasure to have you on, and uh, listeners will be in the midst of hearing a, quite a bit of you on uh, on this po- podcast for very good reason, as I'm sure everyone listening will agree. That's us done on Dark Souls Two. Next time, issue one hundred and ninety one. Sensible Software brought the art of stocking manufacture to video games in the nineteen nineties. Leon's captaining a squad to take a look at how they manage that with Sensible World of Soccer. <laughs>